Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, worship team. I, I was telling the team in huddle, I don't know how long we've been doing outdoor services, but because we have an every other week rotation and a, because of my schedule has been goofy, this is the first time I actually get to worship with this team. So how about we praise God one more time for uh, their willingness to come out here and rehearse and get ready for things. And thank you to all of you who are joining us for worship today on another miserable Saturday night. Isn't this fantastic? Ridiculously hot this week, ridiculously hot last week. Uh, the week before that, it rained and there was a thunderstorm and lightning and we had to cancel. And so it is no wonder HopeOnline.tv remains the primary place where people are gathering together for worship these days. And I, I just kind of want to hang on that phrase, these days, for a little bit. How are these days for you? If we played a game and I said, okay, you're going to have to fill in the blank. These days are blank. How might you fill in the blank? I was talking with Saffron, our soon-to-be nine-year-old, and Saffron said she'd fill in the blank with the, the words unfortunate and annoying. These days are unfortunate and annoying. And I'm, guess, I'm guessing she's in the vast majority of people who would fill in the blank with something sort of negative in connotation rather than positive in connotation. I, I'm guessing there are not very many people who would, you know, very willingly say, yes, these days are the best days of my life. I, I've never been happier with life than I am in this year, 2020. Uh, back in 2007, a woman named Cheryl Batchelder became the CEO of Popeye's, uh, you know, the fast food chicken restaurant. And in 2007, if you would have asked Cheryl Batchelder to fill in the blank as it relates to this company that she was taking over the leadership of, uh, these days for Popeye's chicken are, how would you fill in the blank? A good way to fill in the blank in 2007 would have been declining. Sales were declining, uh, customers were declining, uh, profitability was in decline. If you looked at the uh, shares of stock for Popeye's chicken in 2002, it was at $34. And then when Cheryl Batchelder took over uh, just five years later, it had dropped from $34 to $13. And so it's really interesting to me when you, when you look at and hear her talk about sort of the leadership strategy that she had, that she employed in her 10 years as CEO at Popeye's, back in 2007 when it started, she did not fill in the blank with any kind of negative word or phrase. Instead, she said, these days are a turnaround opportunity. These days are a turnaround opportunity. And I wonder if that might be a good word for us today. These days are a turnaround opportunity. In fact, let's all say that whole phrase together, starting with these days. Ready? These days are a turnaround opportunity. I mean, really, what is it that causes you to say, yes, I want to go sit outside on a grassy slope in ridiculously hot temperature, and I want to worship God. What is it that causes you to come here Saturday after Saturday and worship online weekend after weekend? And I'm guessing part of the reason for that is because you have had a, an experience at some point in your life where the God of the universe created a turnaround opportunity out of something negative that was going on in your life. 
And hopefully part of the reason you're here today is because if there's anything negative going on in your life, you might continue to be putting your hope and your faith in the idea that there is a God who has the power to create a turnaround opportunity today. We're in this message series called Surprise. We've been looking uh, the last month at the surprising things that Jesus does and the surprising things that Jesus says. And when you look kind of closely at at Jesus' life uh, from birth to, you know, resurrection, one of the things that kind of starts to jump out of the page at you is Jesus believes his entire existence, his entire life is about creating turnaround opportunities for the whole world. I mean, one of the first words that Jesus uses in his public ministry, he uses the word repent. The time promised by God has come at last. Repent, Jesus says, and believe the good news. Now, repent is not a word we use very often in our day-to-day life, is it? I've been thinking about the word a lot as I've been preparing for this message. And so today, when two of our kids were kind of you know, going after each other. I just followed them around the house for a while saying, repent, repent, repent. And they didn't appreciate that a whole lot. The biblical writers, though, they use this language of repentance quite a bit. And, and the way we kind of talk about it around here is repentance literally means uh, to change your mind, to change the way you think. When I repent, I change the way I think about God. I change the way I think about myself. I change the way I think about other people. This is all part of what repentance means. And then there's this image that we kind of carry with us as it relates to repentance. For a lot of people, we have this image of kind of doing a U-turn. That is what repentance is. I've been going one direction, then I repent, and now I'm going a whole new direction. One direction, new direction. Those would be good names for bands, wouldn't it? Anyway, uh, repentance, it's this idea, I've been following a certain set of rules or principles or certain uh, leader, maybe a person that I've been following, and, and then I repent, and now I'm following a different set of rules or maybe even a different person. I have turned around. In our Bible reading for today that, that Christy shared with us, Jesus presents us with a turnaround opportunity as it relates to greatness. Jesus is giving us the opportunity to repent, the opportunity to change our mind, change the way we think about greatness. Again, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can go ahead and pull them out. We're in Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to begin in verse 20. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. And she replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. As I was reading through this uh, this year, I couldn't help but think, um, this week I was reading through it, I couldn't help but think, You know, in in our world, there seems to be a whole lot of, I don't know, concern around problematic parenting. And I think the reality is there's been problematic parenting in in every generation. It just looks a little different each generation. And one of the problems with parenting these days is parents are a little too quick to advocate for their kids. And so coaches will complain that parents are coming directly to them to argue for playing time. My kid should be starting. 
My kids should be playing more. Why isn't this happening? Uh, our kids are in choir, and at the end of the school year, the choir directors send out an email letting everybody know, here's the, uh, after auditions, here's the choir that you're going to be in next fall when uh, choir starts up again. And every year when the email comes out letting us know, here's the choir lists, it also comes with some pretty clear instructions from the directors on how to respond to what choir you are now in. Here are appropriate things to put out on your social media play, uh, pages, and here are inappropriate things to put out on your social media pages. And the directors are not just talking to the students. They're also talking to the parents. Like, please don't use your social media platform as a way of complaining or criticizing the process. There's a better way to do it. it but it reminds me that the more things change, the more they stay the same. 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' day, a parent comes directly to Jesus with a request. I want my two sons to be viewed as the greatest. And Jesus turns this into a turnaround opportunity immediately. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? Jesus wants to make sure they understand. If they want to be great, he wants to make sure they understand what greatness is all about. And for Jesus, for Jesus, it seems like there's a connection between suffering and greatness. Uh, back in April, when this whole sort of lockdown pandemic thing was still pretty new, I was really excited when ESPN started to broadcast this 10-part documentary series on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls of the 1980s and the 1990s. It was called The Last Dance. And part of what I found so fascinating about that documentary series was the way Michael Jordan talked about greatness. You know, he's unbelievably motivated individual. And he's achieved you know, incredible success. And it started kind of back in high school when he got cut from his high school basketball team. And that just motivated him to work even harder. He became a high school All-American, went to North Carolina University, where he said to his then assistant coach, Roy Williams, I want to be the greatest player in North Carolina basketball history. And no one's going to work harder than me. No one will ever work harder than me. And that, that driving work ethic was one of the keys to the success of Michael Jordan. He gets to the NBA. He's uh, playing for the Chicago Bulls. And the team's having a little bit of success, but they're nowhere near a championship, even though Jordan is probably the most um, exciting player in the league. And so he makes a decision. I want to be great. I want to win championships. Here's my strategy for doing it. I'm going to become the villain of the locker room. I don't need to be friends with my teammates. I need them to respect me. I need them to fear me. And so I'm going to be willing to get in their face, and I'm going to point out when they're making mistakes, and I'm going to yell at them. And anytime anybody new joined the team, they quickly understood this is the way it worked. And, and Michael Jordan believed this is what it takes to make sure my teammates are as focused as they need to be in order for us to be great, in order for us to win championships. It was a great documentary series. A lot of newspaper columnists were writing reviews. We watched it, and here's what we thought. Uh, one of the reviews that I was reading, uh, the person who wrote the review was saying, as he watched it, it looked like uh, he believed Michael Jordan saw a connection between suffering and greatness. In order to be great, 
Michael Jordan got to a spot where he was willing to sacrifice, this is what this author says, he was willing to sacrifice his humanity and his happiness in order to win championships. So here's the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and saying, I want to make sure my sons have these positions of honor when your kingdom comes. And Jesus is like, you don't know what what you're asking. Can you drink from this cup of suffering? And initially they say, yes, absolutely, of course. Like, this is going to be great, Jesus. You're going to be the king, and and we're going to win, and there's going to be parades and champions. It's going to be awesome. And Jesus is just kind of rolling his eyes. And he calls the other ten disciples over, and he has some things to teach them about greatness. Jesus says, you know, this is verse 25, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Jesus is just trying to help, like, we're all on the same page, right? This is the way the world works, right? If you want to be great, you lord it over people, you flaunt your authority, you yell at people, you, you're a bully if you need to, you do whatever it takes to be great, right? And the disciples are like, yeah, right. Surprise. Jesus keeps going. And he says, but among you, it will be different. But among you, it will be different. Maybe we should all say that phrase together. Say this with me. But among you, it will be different. I love sports, and one of the reasons I was excited 15 years ago when I was uh, able to move here with our family to Ankeny and uh, get to pastor in this community, I knew that Ankeny loved sports as well. So I was excited to be a part of a, a community like that. One of the things that I've never really understood about sports, particularly sports in America, not just in Ankeny, but pretty much everywhere that I've been, is we allow things to happen on the practice field and in the locker room and, uh, uh, you know, uh, during games, we allow things to happen that we would not allow to happen any other place in society. I mean, I was thinking about this. Could you imagine if, you know, we got together for a staff meeting? Once a month, we have an all-staff meeting we call Lunch and Learn, and every staff member from all the campuses at Hope, we get together at the West Des Moines campus. Could you imagine at our next Lunch and Learn Pastor Mike just starts laying into us and lighting it up the way some coaches light up their players when when they make mistakes. I mean, we would think that would be completely ridiculous, right? There's no place for that. It is uncalled for. It's It's never right unless it's a coach yelling at players. And there's all sorts of other things that happen in the sporting world that you just kind of like, why do we let people talk like that and use language like that? And I recognize, listen, it's not necessarily an apples-to-apples comparison, a church staff meeting versus a coach talking to his players. It's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison unless you're serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus says to his disciples is, among you it will be different. Among you, it will be different. So if you are a coach or a teacher or, you know, put yourself in whatever position it might be. We're keeping it in the context of sports. If you're a parent of an athlete, Jesus makes it clear. 
the path to greatness for followers of Jesus is going to look completely different than the path to greatness for people who are not serious about following after Jesus. And again, I can hear your eyes rolling. I can hear people saying, come on, Pastor Scott, this is the real world. I mean, that's nice in theory, but there's a reason the phrase, nice guys finish last, is a phrase. And I get it. I understand. You're right. And maybe that's why I'm really fascinated fascinated by the success of Tony Bennett and the University of Virginia basketball team. Uh, in 2018, uh, they became infamous when the Virginia Cavaliers became the first number one seed ever to lose to a 16 seed in March Madness. It had never happened before until Tony Bennett and Virginia did. They lost to University of Maryland, Baltimore County or something like that. The next year, they came back, Virginia came back, and they won the whole tournament. They won the championship. And a lot of people said, a lot of people said that championship victory is validation for the coaching philosophy of Tony Bennett. The coaching philosophy of Tony Bennett is based on something he calls the five pillars. But if you listen closely to these five pillars, I think you might actually hear the words of Jesus. Here are the five pillars. Humility, know who you are, is what humility means. Passion, do not be lukewarm. Lukewarm, it comes right out of the Bible. I, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Unity, do not divide our house. Thankfulness, learn from each circumstance. And then finally, servanthood. And the way servanthood gets described in the culture of Virginia basketball, servanthood is all about making our teammates better. How do we make our teammates better? We become their servants. This is what Tony Bennett teaches his team. So I just want you to consider this contrast. Michael Jordan had a decision to make. I want to be great. How are we going to do it? I'm going to become a tyrant. I'm going to yell at my teammates. I'm going to be willing to fight them if necessary in order for us to be great. And it worked. They won six championships. I just want you to understand it is not the only way to win championships. He did all of that. His strategy was to make his teammates better. Here's Tony Bennett, who has also won a championship, saying, our strategy for making teammates better is servanthood. Sounds a whole lot like Jesus, who goes on to say in Matthew 20, if you want to be great, you must become the servant of all. And Jesus does not ask anyone. He doesn't ask his disciples. He does not ask you and me to do something he's not willing to do himself. He concludes it by saying, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Servanthood gets us back to Popeye's chicken in 2007. So uh, Cheryl Batchelder is facing this tremendous leadership challenge. And she calls her leadership team together. She basically says, look, we've had this strategy in place. We've been following these business practices. And here's where it's gotten us. It's not working. Perhaps we should repent. She didn't actually say that, but she said maybe we should change our mind about what philosophy we should have, what strategy we should have. And so she got her leadership team together. They strategized and they planned, and they came up with a three-step process for 
turning around this organization, Popeye's Chicken. Step number one was they declared a daring destination. Declare a daring destination. Where do we want to go? Who do we want to be? Five years from now, ten years from now, what, what, is, what do we want Popeyes to be known for? What, what, what's going to define whether or not we're winning, whether or not uh, we're successful, whether or not we're great? And so it's all about vision casting, right? But uh, if you're changing the whole you know, organizational structure, it's going to require some courage, and that's a risky thing. So she liked this language, declare a daring destination. They did that, and then they got to step two. Step two involved the board, and they got the board together at a hotel conference room. And what was interesting to me, this daring uh, destination, they defined it as, we want to be the hottest concept in quick service restaurants. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase, quick service restaurants. Fast food restaurants, right? She said, no, 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 it's quick service restaurants. And that mattered once they got to step two, because step two was all about who will we choose to serve? And she's asking the board to help them define that. Who are we going to choose to serve as a quick service restaurant in in, in this industry? And so, again, well, do we serve our customers? Do we serve our employees? Uh, Do we serve the board or the uh, stockholders? Who do we serve? And somebody raises their hand and says, shouldn't we be serving everyone? Which, of course, is the right answer. But how do you do that? You have to start with focusing on one group of people to serve. And so they decided back in 2007, the people we're going to choose to serve are our franchise owners. If we don't have franchise owners, there's really no Popeye's chicken. The franchise owners, they're the key to our past, present, and future success. And if we want to succeed as as an organization, it's only going to happen if each of our individual franchises are succeeding and getting greater and greater all the time. So step one was to declare this daring destination. Step two, uh, choose to serve, and particularly asking the question, who are we going to choose to serve? Narrowing that down. And then step three was to deliver results, and they did. While she was the CEO, uh, they were able to increase customers by 30% and uh, profitability by 40% and market share by 50%, and the stocks rose from $13 into the 50s. Experienced tremendous success, but what fascinated me most as I was uh, reading about and, and listening to her talk about this turnaround that took place under her leadership at Popeyes, she said back in step two was the real key defining moment. When we made the decision we're going to choose to serve our franchise owners, she said at that point in time, we did not even like our franchise owners. They were annoying to us. They were bo- they're always complaining. They're always asking for this and asking for that. And they just, like, if we could get through a day without hearing from one of our franchise owners, that was a successful day. And it just wasn't happening. And so what they realized was our most important people are people we do not even like. And they decided that's what needed to change. So she says, she says, more than just choosing to serve our franchise owners, We had to make the decision to love our franchise owners. Love them for their investment in this company. Love them for their passion for what they're doing. Love them enough to listen to them. And in the conclusion she came to, this turnaround story at Popeye, she says, love was what distinguished us from our competitors. Love is what distinguished us from our competitors. 
she's discovering there's this connection between serving and loving. Anybody like the movie The Princess Bride? Cult classic, so many people kind of love The Princess Bride. But it begins with, I, I think she's called Princess Buttercup. I don't remember. I didn't go back to, to look and watch. We'll just call her Buttercup because she's not a princess at that point. She's just this peasant girl. And she's living in this house, this modest house, and there's this, you know, lovely rolling valley uh, around her, but she has drab clothes. You can tell she's a peasant, except she orders people around as if she is royalty, and the person she loves to order around more than any other person is this peasant boy uh, named Westley. She refers to him as farm boy, and she's always wanting to ask Westley to do just these menial tasks, and whatever she asks, he's willing to do it. Farm boy, she says, saddle my horse. And he responds with the phrase, as you wish. Farm boy, she says, fetch me some water. And he responds with the phrase, as you wish. On and on and on it goes. She makes requests, and he is like devoted to serving her. Every request, he responds with the phrase, as you wish. And then uh, the narrator of the movie at one point says, Buttercup has this precious insight one day that was that it just changed everything for her. She had this insight that every time the peasant boy, Wesley, this, this servant, every time he said, as you wish, what he was really saying was, I love you. I love you. There's a connection between serving and loving, and Buttercup starts to make that connection, but it's a connection that kind of fuels the way Jesus lives his life. Yes, he came to be a servant of all. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, but what motivated all of that was love. Love is what makes the difference. Love is what makes a turnaround opportunity possible for any of us. And so I just think whatever the turnaround opportunity you're looking for in your life, you got to somehow figure out a way, how do you connect it to loving service to the people around you? So I, w I was thinking you're not, most of you, you're not CEOs of you know, multi-million dollar industries, but all of us are CEOs of our life. And I just wondered, what might it look like if each of us, in terms of our own lives, what if we walked through this three-step plan that Cheryl Batchelder had for Popeye's chicken? Step one, declare a daring destination. When's the last time you declared a daring destination for your life and for your most important relationships? When's the last time, if you're married, you and your spouse sat down and you said, five years from now, ten years from now, here's where we want to be, and you made a plan of goals for here's how we're going to get there. What's the daring destination for those of you who are parents as it relates to your children? What are the courageous, uh, risky decisions that you can make today that's going to get that relationship to a place where you are hopeful that it will be some point down the road? What's the turnaround opportunity for you? It has everything to do with love. The second thing, step two, is choosing to serve. And it might be simple for some of you. It might be it's simply your spouse, might be a friend, might be, you know, a child. But what I want you to remember is the secret Cheryl Batchelder talked about was the people we decided to serve that led to this turnaround opportunity for Popeye's chicken 
It was people we didn't like, people we were having a hard time even liking. So maybe when you ask yourself the question, who am I going to choose to serve? Maybe it might be someone in your life who's really difficult to love right now. And that might also be super easy for you to know, oh yeah, I know who that person is. It might be easy to identify. It might be very difficult to actually make that decision to choose to love them. And then third, look for results. And, and I, I wonder if maybe the best way to think about what does it look like to deliver results is just take the pressure off yourself on that one and, and make that just your prayer request. Lord, you're, you're the one that's going to have to bring this turnaround. Because none of us are going to be able to get it right. We're going to fail time and time again. And one of the temptations when we fail is to just start loading ourselves up with guilt and shame. And this internal monologue starts going on inside so many people. It's just like, I'm never going to get it right. There's no way God could love me. There's no way anyone could love me. I'm a failure when it comes to A, B, C, D, whatever it might be. And so I wonder if one of the reasons we love to gather together for worship is it's a reminder to us we really are all in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of grace. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. We have all fallen short of the less than glorious standards we set for ourselves. We need God to breathe new life into us. We need a breakthrough of God's love and God's grace to change us, to give us the ability to repent, to change our mind, to change our direction, and more and more all the time to start following the way that Jesus asks us to go. So the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing a closing song, but as they're coming up, could we all just stand together and I just want to pray for us. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Lord, we thank you for the surprising good news of our faith. That we have a God who was willing at just the right time. Not after we got it right, not, not after we fixed everything, not after we cleaned everything up. But at just the right time, while we were still sinners this surprising thing happened. You came to this earth. You showed us the way just by how you lived your life. And then you died for us. What kind of a God dies? Our God does. And our God has the power to overcome death, to overcome sin, to overcome shame. Our God has the power to help us kind of figuratively put our arms around each other and encourage one another and say, hey, dust yourself off. Let's try it again tomorrow. But Lord, as we try to follow faithfully, as we try to serve the world around us, we cannot do it unless we are filled by and fueled by your love for us. So through your Holy Spirit, Lord, fill us with your love and fill us with your grace create turnaround opportunities, create breakthroughs relationally for each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.